This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's show comes from Darabin Presbyterian Church in Melbourne's inner north. Today's big question, is God bloodthirsty? We're asking this question today to Mike Rater. Mike is director of the Centre for Biblical Preaching based in Melbourne. He's an in-demand speaker across Australia and around the world, and he joins me now. Mike, welcome to Bigger Questions. It's nice to be back at Bigger Questions. That's great. Now, Mike, today's big question is about blood. So do you get squeamish? At the sight of blood? I, I don't personally. I've got a friend, even the sight of a syringe, really, he collapses. Right. Just the sight, just the thought. So, but I'm not like that, no. I, uh, I've had plenty of blood tests in my life, and I have plenty more in the, in the years to come. Well, I must confess that I am actually a bit squeamish at, at the sight or even the thought of blood, but I'll, I'll try to deal with that in today's show. Now, we want to acknowledge that today's topic is a confronting one, dealing with potentially disturbing issues as we confront violence and blood in the Bible. But Mike, whilst this is confronting, uh, do you think it's important that we talk about this? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think one of the great stumbling blocks for, for, for Christians and for unbelievers in the Bible and in God is the accounts in the Bible about God, frankly, commanding his people to go into a land and wipe out all the people. It just sounds like God is genocidal. Yeah. And that's, that's to be honest, and that's, that's perhaps, I think, the most confronting part of the whole Bible. So, yes, it's a topic <laughs> I, I, I'm glad to speak about because it's, it's just so important. Right, yeah. So it's important to deal with, but obviously it's going to raise some potentially Sure, and please don't think I have all the answers. I don't. Mm-hmm. And let me say one more thing. I don't want to come over as just cut and dried, these are the accounts of people's lives, and it's heartbreaking. Can I just say one thing as we, as we begin? The scene in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus pronounces judgment on the city of Jerusalem, and men, women, and kids will die. And as he says these words, the tears are rolling down his cheeks. And I probably won't cry in this discussion, but please don't take my lack of tears as a, meaning I, I don't care. These are confronting passages about people's lives, and they do evoke emotions. Mm, mm. Yeah, so we will reflect with tears, perhaps. Oh, as that, we, that would be the right response, actually. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, as we kick off bigger questions, we do like to ask a couple of smaller questions just to get us thinking a bit. So today we're talking with Mike Rater about blood in the Bible. So, Mike, I thought we'd test you on just how much you know about blood in the Bible. So there's two questions, okay? Question one, according to BibleGateway.com, there are 392 references to blood in the New International Version of the Bible. Now, which of the following words has more references than blood in the Bible. Okay, you can answer with more than one if you like. Okay, so is it A, love, B, peace, C, gentleness, D, kindness, E, patience, or F, bald or baldness? So which of those words, if any, does the Bible mention more than blood? I can't imagine it'd be baldness. So why would you include it if it's not? So <laughs> okay. I'm tantalised by baldness. Right. I'll go for I'll go for love. No, 
the obvious answer would be love. I'm sure that's the wrong one also. Okay, no, well, you, actually, it's right. Oh, it's actually, there yes, there's only one. It's only one out of all those, and that's love. Where's baldness come? Probably baldness well, was last. I had to say, there's seven references to bald or baldness right. in the Bible. Uh, love has 686. There are 392 references to, to, to blood. Peace, 249. Kindness, 56. Patience, 42. And gentleness, 22. Okay. Okay, question two. An atheist blogger called Steve Wells at a blog called Dwindling in Unbelief documented all the times that God ordained or permitted death or killing in the Bible. So according to this list at Dwindling in Unbelief, how many killing events, times in which killings were inspired, commanded or approved by God, are there in the Bible? Is it A, 9, there are a couple of events where people die in the Bible. Is it B, 29, C, 59 or D, 139, there appears to be a lot of killing. Well, I'm going to go for the, the other, the top one. Okay, I'm yeah. going to go for 139. D, yes. And that's actually the right answer. Okay. It is, yes. 139 times. Yes, yeah, so, Mike, you, you have passed. Oh, Congratulations. You... Can, can I go now? <laughs> <laughs> okay. If they were just the... They're the smaller questions. <laughs> All right. Now we move to some bigger ones. The bigger ones. Um, so, Mike, these numbers are shocking, really, when you yeah, think about yeah. it. That's for a so-called good book by a so-called loving God, there seems to be a lot of blood in the Bible. In fact, atheist Richard Dawkins claims that the God of the Old Testament is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. So doesn't God have a lot of blood on his hands? Um, well, what do you mean by blood on his hands? I think we use that term to mean someone who sheds blood without a just cause. Mm -hmm. So like that, that cop in Minneapolis, has he, does he have the blood of George Floyd on his hands? Yes, he does. That man didn't deserve to die. Does a judge have blood on her hands? A judge does really unkind things to people. Mm -hmm. He, she might lock them up for 30, 40 years in a small room, takes away all their rights, makes their life visible, causes their wife and kids grief. I mean, they're really mean things. Does he or she have blood in her hands? We'd say, no, they don't, mostly, because he or she is exercising justice on people who've done wrong and deserve punishment. So the whole discussion, Rob, about God and violence can't be extracted from a discussion about God's, God's justice, God's holiness, and human sin, yeah. human wickedness that, 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 that intimately involves. So the short answer is, is, is no, he doesn't. Does God use violence? Yes, he does, but I would say justifiably. Right. Well, maybe we can have a test case here because there's many stories in the Old Testament about large-scale killings, and one is found in Deuteronomy 20 yeah. where it starts, uh, it says, when you go to war, against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. Mm. When you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. And he shall say, here Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Now it's pretty clear that the God is endorsing this. This is perhaps a different context to justice, etc. He's, he's a fighter endorsing the violent actions of his people. Does, does that make you feel uncomfortable? Well, we can't water down what the Bible says. I would say he more than endorses, he commands. Yes. That is, in these, in these wards, God is the initiator. He tells Israel to go in there and to... And to be violent and, and go to war. And one of the, the key terms of God in the Bible is he's the Lord of hosts. And that means the, the armies of heaven. He, he, is, he is the warrior God. From Genesis to Revelation, he's the, he is the God who, 
who makes war, that's not, of course, not all he is. He's much more than that. Right, yeah. But one of the things he does is he makes war against his enemies, his people's enemies, those who do evil. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the reality. Yeah. So, no, I, I'm, I'm so, not, so when, he go, when it says he goes to war here, it's against the enemy. So what constitutes an enemy of God? Is it just anyone who opposes him or is it, is it random? It's interesting. Deuteronomy 20, when God tells his people to go into the, the land of Canaan, mm-hmm. that story begins... Where, 300 years before, in, in Genesis 15, where God says to Abraham, his servant, I'm going to give you this land, but not yet. Because in this land are people called the Amorites, and they're very wicked, but their wickedness <laughs> is not complete. I want to give them th- time, 300 years, to get their act together and not be, not just sit against me, but against each other. And he waits 300 years. He puts up with their, their crimes and finally God acts, says, go in there now and end them, destroy them, because their wickedness is so great. Mm. It's a response. I mean, these people, that they committed child sacrifice. They were immoral. It's in archaeology, not just the Bible. It's recorded in history of their wickedness. And because God is holy, there's a point where he says, that's enough. I've waited so long for you to turn around and change. You haven't changed. I must act in justice. And this time he uses his people. Mm-hmm. Is that the reason that the Lord is going to go in fighting with his people or for his people? Now, the other thing to bear in mind, Rob, when you read the next book, Joshua, the army goes there and they meet a woman called Rahab, Mm -hmm. who's a a Canaanite, a prostitute. And she says, when, and she trusts God, when you come, don't hurt me. And they don't. So this, the the, the command to to take the land and kill people is, is always with the caveat if you turn to God, even the last, the last minute, he longs for people to put aside their sin, to turn it, and of course he'll forgive them and embrace them and make them part of his people. Mm. So it's not just a wanton, wipe them all out. It's a plea, turn to me, come to me, be forgiven, change your lifestyle, and when that happens, you'll be forgiven. If that doesn't happen, you'll be punished. Although, later in Deuteronomy 20, it does seem that God does encourage or that the Israelites to kill almost indiscriminately. So in verse 13, it says, When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put the sword, all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else, you may take this as plunder for yourselves. So kill all the men, enslave the women. It doesn't seem like they're there sort of saying, guys, if you'd like to repent, now's the time. It's yeah. just go in and, and kill them. Yeah, but Israel knew from their history. I mean, there are many cases of, of uh, people of other tribes coming to them, joining Israel and seeking forgiveness. They knew that the background to the command was always the option for those, the outside of the alien, to become part of God's people. They knew that. Mm-hmm. So implicit in all those books of the Bible is the, is the opportunity for people to repent and turn to God, find forgiveness, and become part of Israel. It's not there in that verse, but it's there in the previous, mm-hmm. previous books of the Bible, many yeah. accounts, and when the alien comes, treat them like they're one of yours. Don't, don't be prejudiced. Treat them like they're an Israelite. Mm. Be just, be fair, be kind, take care of them. Yeah. So how do we then justify killing all the men and enslaving the women? and the children, and the livestock? Well, I think the, the, the answer that comes, comes back to God's justice and God's holiness. Mm-hmm. Unpack it, that bit. It, 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 it requires justice. Um, I've been seeing riots lately around the world with signs like defund the police. Oh, another one I saw the other day, just this week in Australia, close the prisons. Uh, stop fining people. In other words, remove all punishment. Now, apart from the fact that would be lead to anarchy, 
it just would be wrong for a society just to stand back and do nothing when this crime, an awful crime, is wicked itself. Crime must be dealt with. Sin must be punished. And God has stood by for centuries. It's interesting in the Bible, Rob, the claim of God's people, not so much as you're wrong to do this, but how come it took you so long? Yeah. You know, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? We, we've been suffering for centuries under these people. You've done nothing. Please, God, act. And I, I get that. I get that. I, I see people on the TV, people's frustration when, when courts get it wrong, when, when justice isn't done. So here's a situation of people who are wicked people doing terrible things, and God finally says, I can stand this no more. I'm going to act. And this time, he does so through his people. In the past, like it, in chapter 6 of Genesis, he sent a flood. Mm. With Sodom and Gomorrah, he sent fire and brimstone. This time, uniquely, he uses his own people as the agents of his punishment. But it's, it's given to us as God's just judgment on terribly wicked people. Mm. Men, women, and children. Hmm. And they're all caught up in that. Well, potentially to come back at that, one non-believer once said that Christians never cease to amaze me in how they go to such lengths in rationalizing and justifying God's murderous nature. So are you just trying to rationalize and justify a, a bloodthirsty uh, and violent God? Yeah, here? that's interesting, God's murderous nature. You see, when you read the whole Bible, what is God's nature? And, and look, look, I said, there are things here that are are hard to understand, and I don't, I don't pretend it's easy, okay. But what's God's nature? I know from the whole revelation of God and what he does, his nature is love, his essence is love. Because he, he came in, in his son, he suffered violence, himself terrible violence, that we can be forgiven. He gave his life for us. That's God's nature, love. There's so many examples of that. Like you said before, the word used often to describe, or the most common word, is love. That is God's essence. He's not, in essence, murder. He's, in essence, love. But he is just and holy. Mm. Questions actually come from my daughter, uh, from our online audience. Um, how can God kill if he's all about love? Well, I would say, he d this might sound hard, he does kill because he is love. That is, he exacts justice because he's loving. It would not be loving of God to stand back and do nothing. When you, you know, when you see evil done, to do nothing about the evil is not an act of love. It's an act of cowardice. It's an, it's an immoral act. When you see evil done, you must act to punish that evil and to stop it. We, we recognize that as a society. Mm. I remember um, hearing Bill Clinton, Clinton being interviewed after he finished being president. He was asked what were his regrets in his, from his eight years president. He said his main regret was he did nothing about Rwanda. Hmm. He heard about Rwanda and what was happening there. Thousands, hundreds of thousands murdered, hacked to death. Awful. And he stood by and did nothing. That's his one regret. More than regret, the one thing he said, the one thing I think, the big thing more than Monica Lewinsky, the big thing I did wrong was I didn't act when I knew what was happening there. Well, if that's true of Clinton, how much more true is that of God? To see what's happening in a, in a, amongst the people and do nothing would be, I think, immoral and unloving of God. So he does act, this time through his people, and he acts decisively to eradicate once and for all that, that, that evil. Mm. 
Hence the totality so, of the destruction. Yeah, so thanks for sh sharing that, Mark. About the, so we've talked about the violence, certainly in destruction of nations, etc., and of peoples uh, in the Old Testament. So there is a concept in the Bible itself that God desires sacrifice mm. and a blood sacrifice to appease him. So, for example, in, in Genesis 8, God is pleased with the aroma of burnt sacrifices. And then in the book of Leviticus, blood is required as an atonement for sin. Mm. So... I mean, isn't this all a bit primitive, I know, using well, blood to pl placate a god? To some degree, yes. It was the practice of many societies back then. They, they used blood sacrifices. But in Israel, there are two truths, I guess. God is holy. People are unholy. Therefore, how do an unholy people approach a holy God without being consumed by his holiness, without God just punishing them? So God put means in place to allow their approach. And one was a symbol. That is, you're unholy. The wages of sin is death. You deserve to die. I long for you to live. Therefore, I'll take a substitute. I'll take an animal. And we'll kill the animal. And when you kill the animal, put your hands upon the animal as a sign that you, in a sense, are identifying with it. Its blood's poured out, which is a symbol of your blood being poured out. Your sin is atoned for and you can come into my presence. So the blood there is a symbol of the life of the animal which substitutes for the life of, of the worshipper, the sinful worshipper. Mm. But why do you specifically need blood as the symbol? Why can't it just be, you know, why can't God be happy with a fine or you know, community service or you know, the bucket challenge or, or, or something like that, some other form of punishment or symbolism? Yes, and there were fines in Israel, depending, in, in any culture, a minor offence brings about a minor punishment. So there are fines. If you, if you don't socially distance for the next few weeks, you'll be fined. You won't be sentenced yeah. to 30 years in prison. If you commit a murder, you don't, you're not fined, and rightly so. You're given the maximum penalty. Yeah. And so uh, God takes sin so seriously. He says when these sins happen, the penalty is death. You won't die, but I'll take a life instead. I'll take, and the blood is a, it's a symbol of life. Mm. So he takes the blood of an animal in the place of the blood of the worshipper. So one, it says to us, God takes sin seriously, mm. very seriously. We don't. God takes it more seriously than we do. And, but secondly, he wants us to be forgiven and come into his presence. So he, he provides for us a substitute, which is the animal, the blood or the goat. Mm. So perhaps some of that, so Leviticus 17 is a place where that's sort of explained a little bit mm. further, where it says in Le Leviticus 17:11, uh, for the life of a creature is in the blood yeah. and I have given it to you to make atonement for your souls on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So is that really that's right, unpacking yeah. that that's idea right, a bit the more? Blood, that's right. You take, you take away blood from any, any creature, then, of course, the creature dies. So it's, it's a symbol of the life of the creature, which we identify with in, this, in the sacrifice. That's right. Yeah. Now, the final killing event uh, in his blog that Steve Wells has at Dwindling in Unbelief involves the death of just one person, Jesus. Hmm. How is this killing or this, this blood significant? Okay. It's interesting, when Jesus appeared, his friend John said, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. God came to us in Jesus, the God-man Christ, who lived the perfect life. And when the Old Testament made a rule for sacrifice, you took a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, with no faults, and that was sacrificed. Along comes the God-man Jesus, in whom there's no fault, no blemish, and he becomes all that Old Testament pointed forward to. He becomes the lamb, and he dies. You see, 
a life must be given. God is just. When there's a crime, we, we know it in our society, when there's a crime, a payment must be paid. When I sin, God, out of his great love for me and you, takes my place and takes that payment. And that's, that's his own life, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. And the, or we say the blood of Christ. The blood, well, that, that blood of Christ is, is an idea that found in a New Testament book in 1 Peter. Yeah. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So that really unpacks a bit more of what you've just said. But then it asks you a, a, a larger question, a bigger question uh, emerges then. Uh, but then how could a loving, ethical God put his own son through the horror of the cross? Well, let's not divide God. Paul says in one of his letters, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. That is, God came amongst us. What like God said to his son out there, okay, geez, I've got a, a dirty job for you to do. Go and do this dirty job and die. Now, that was God who came to us. It was God who died on the cross. Jesus himself said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I take it up. Father, Son, together as one, came into the world to sacrifice their life, his life, for us. Mm. So this wasn't accidental then. I mean, it goes on in verse 20 uh, on 1 Peter. It says, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So this was planned. Well, right I said, from the I said of... a moment ago, God brought in a whole system of sacrifices where you take a spotless lamb, it's killed, it's blood poured out, that blood cleanses you. When God put that law in place, in his mind was 2,000 years in the future. When he would come to us as the spotless lamb, his blood will be poured out to forgive us so we can come to the holy God and live with him forever. It was planned way back then. It was, as one Bible verse says, it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Absolutely. Mm. So how then can this possibly be good news? Well, I think it's the best news. When someone saves your life, Rob, that's very good news. I think the starting point for understanding the Bible, God, you and me, is to look at your own life. I, I look at myself in the mirror and I see outwardly a nice guy, but inwardly I know my heart, my thoughts, my minds, my motives, my deeds, my words are just corrupt. And I know if I was to stand before God, if God was to appear right now in this room, appear to me in all his holiness, I'd, I'd weep, I'd be consumed, I'd be terrified. I, I, you see, I, our problem is, Rob, we underplay how holy God is and we underplay how wicked we are. Mm. And I know how wicked I am. And when this holy God says to me, uh, Mike, I love you so much. I won't destroy you. I won't wipe you out. I've given my son to you so I can live with you forever. That, that's the best news in the world. That, and that's, that's the news, the message which changes people's lives. The, the wonderful love of God shown for us in the blood of Christ. Uh, that's why you, you, so many songs Christians sing, uh, you know, uh, there's power in the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We glory in the blood, not because we're bloodthirsty, because the blood stands for the wonderful love of God shown to us in the death of Jesus. Mm. 
So this passage talks about the blood of Jesus being precious. So is that in some way how it's precious to you? Well, it's precious. It is precious. It's the blood of God himself. This is the eternal, holy, righteous God. And he, in a sense, he gave, he, he poured out his blood for us. How precious is that? The blood of the Lord Jesus, the, the, the best man who ever lived, the purest, spotless man. So the blood itself, the life of Christ is unspeakably precious. And that's poured out. And therefore, as a gift to me, it's an unspeakably precious gift. And, and to anybody like it, ancient Israel, anybody who comes to him, whatever their background, and turns to him, he'll receive them warmly. Mm. It also says here in 1 Peter that Jesus' blood uh, redeemed people from an empty way of life. So how do you then think that Jesus' blood then offers something to people feeling a sense of emptiness in our world today? Well, what Christ's death doesn't just take away our past and wipe it clean. It gives us a future. I'm, I'm now a child of God. I've got a, I'm, I'm heading towards eternal life with him. And I've got a work to do in this world to serve him. And for me personally, I can't think of any better reason to get up in the morning than to serve God, to try to do what I can to make this world a better place, to tell others about the wonderful news about Jesus, and to live for God over his glory gives my life purpose and meaning and joy. For me personally, the Christian life is an immensely fulfilling life. Mm. And to know that the, the things I do in this life will last. I mean, so, Jesus has this picture of the last day and he says to those who love him, well done, good and faithful servant. I've seen your life. You've served me and my people and my world well. Receive your inheritance. That's a, that's a great thing to live for. Mm. And this is built on the, the blood of Christ? Or because of the blood of Christ. Or because of the, outside every church is a cross. That's a symbol of the Christian faith, mm. a cross. Not a sword, not a bazooka, not a tank. <laughs> yeah. But a cross, the symbol of the death of God, the blood of Christ, and the longing of God for people to come to him, live in him, find joy and peace and life everlasting. Mm. So, Mike, is God bloodthirsty? No, he, no, he isn't. For the world he has made has turned against him and become a violent world a world full of blood and sin and wickedness. And a just God must act to remove that. And the thing he's done most of all to, to remove that is to, be, to come amongst us in his son and die on a cross to forgive sin and to begin to change the world. And one day he'll come back. And the picture is actually, Rob, of a, a warrior, Jesus, on a horse for the final act of war that'll bring in the age to come, where all evil is, is ended, so there can be an everlasting kingdom of, of justice and all the things you mentioned, kindness, love, gentleness, faithfulness, patience, goodness, the kind of world we want, but only possible by the death of Jesus. Mm. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the bigger question, is God bloodthirsty? From 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Mike Rater. Thanks, Rob. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions.